Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Kriggers, I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Ms. Melmoy, I am one of your other hosts. The only other host. The only other host, it's just the two of us. Got, and besides the ghost host. And the ghost host, who's doing some potentially funky things with our sound tonight, yeah. but uh, we're gonna muddle through. And uh, if there is ever an episode to have weird sound problems, you know. This one. You know, it's it's going to be fine and we're going to get through it, much like the movie we're talking about <laughs> this evening, which uh, what are we talking about? Well, of course, uh, it's Friday the 13th, which here at Splatter Chatter means it's time for another Friday the 13th special in which we'll be discussing Adam Marcus's Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, the ninth installment in the Friday the 13th franchise. Starring Kane Hodder, Stephen Williams, and Carrie Keegan. Now, if you're just joining us and you're like, what the heck, why are they talking about the ninth installment of Friday the 13th? What you need to know is... We had eight Friday the 13th before this. Yep. And on every subsequent Friday the 13th, we covered the next installment. So if you want to catch up, go back and listen to the previous eight Friday the 13th specials. Um, and so you're all prepared for what is a very particular entry in this series. You know, it's really fitting that, you know, this is the, really the first time I'm drinking alcohol in, since I had surgery. And well, yeah, tell us about your surgery. So here's my, my one tidbit that I tell everybody, because I have not had like surgery as an adult. Mm-hmm. Like I had my tonsils out when I was, when I was wee one. Yeah. And I think I had a tooth pulled when I was a kid too. So I got, I got a, a wisdom, the one wisdom tooth I have, got it out. Just the one. Just the one. Um, and, you know, they're in there and they give me some gas because they're like, relax, mm. you know, and it works, you know, it's like, you know, I can see my heart rate on the monitor dropping and I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm feeling like, okay, I'm like a little calmer. Um, you know, and at some point I just closed my eyes because I was just like, I don't want to experience like the I, the feeling of falling, like the, you know, sort of like the going out portion because they knocked okay. me out for it. Oh yeah. They, yeah, they take you out. <laughs> so, so, so here's what happens. So the doctor comes in, you know, he does his stuff. He's like, okay, like you're ready. You know, like you're, you're, you're are you feeling relaxed? Yada, yada. He asked me this a couple of times and then he's finally like, um, he's like, okay, I think we're ready to get started. And as part of the same sentence in my brain sure and we're done (laughs) yep I told I told you it's like you blink yep I I fully like it to the point where like he was putting the gauze in my mouth and I thought they had started before I fell asleep yep and I was just like you know and at that point I was like okay this is you know and I'm trying to sit up and my limbs feel like heavier than they've ever felt in my life and a nurse is like, okay, come on. And I'm like a little, like, I feel like a, like a little grandma trying to get to the yep. recovery room. So it was good. It was fine. But that was, you know, very trippy. It's trippy. Um, yeah. But I obviously I've been drinking, I've been drinking just basically water for just cause I was afraid to, you know, do anything crazy back there. So this is uh, yeah. this is a good, a good episode to be coming back in on. <laughs> I mean, I think the only way to talk about this movie is to ha- definitely have a little bit of alcohol on hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so that's, that's what we're going to be getting into 
for the bulk of this episode. Uh, before we um, go to hell, uh, let's do a horror headlines, read, watch, and listen, check in. Miss um, Mao, were you watching or reading anything while you were in recovery or yeah. what have you been up to? Um, so you know what's funny is like the day after the surgery, I rewatched Event Horizon because I was like, you know what? It would be good. <laughs> what a choice. <laughs> Which is fine. It was, everything happened as I remembered it. Um, but I've been reading um, The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig. Nice. How is it? It's good. It um It takes place in like a, I don't know if it's supposed to be, a, they don't really name the town, but it's like some cold town in um, northeastern Pennsylvania about a guy who like inherits a house from his father who passed away and the son has a little bit of like a Danny Torrance thing going on like he's got like he goes to therapy for like being like I guess like incredibly empathetic or something like that so like he and like when well like when in his POV when he sees people he like really responds to their like Mm. emotions in a way that's probably a little bit supernatural but um and uh, basically there's something, there's something sort of like a little bit the outsider, a little bit um, uh, imaginary friend going on. That's the vibes I'm getting so far. Um, but yeah, I've been reading that. I feel like every time I, I'm like, I have to remember, I'm going to see the Northman tomorrow. Not really horror, horror adjacent, but. Or adjacent. Um, and I also here haven't seen it yet, but I've been seeing the reviews for uh, Multiverse of Madness referring to it as MCU's first horror film. Yeah, apparently it's like people are like, oh, wow, Sam Raimi is like all over this. Well, and what's funny is, is I recently rewatched all the Spider-Man movies so I could watch No Way Home. And like in, I mean, a little bit in Spider-Man 3 as well, but like specifically in the first Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 that he did, like you can really see like little scenes where he just picked moments to be like, oh, I can make this a horror like scene. Mm -hmm. Um, And also he like finds ways to shoehorn Bruce Campbell into like cameo roles. (laughs) But um, As we all should, I think. I was like, is he going to be in Multiverse of Madness? Probably. Um, Yeah. So I'm I'm excited for that just because these are two characters who definitely that um I don't I know you're not really a, a Marvel person but um based mm-hmm. on you know who the two Doctor Strange and the Scarlet Witch it's very yeah that's up for it very well I've honestly been like throwing it a, a, the idea around I, I I haven't you know yeah I'm not really a an MCU person but I did because I wanted to watch No Way Home before the Oscars so I right. watched the uh other two tom holland spider man mm-hmm. and then i watched no way home and you know dr strange is there and da, 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 da. and i'm like okay whatever i could see where this is going for multiverse of madness yeah like, i feel like well, i could understand it if i just went to see it and no you definitely i mean there's some of them where it's like because i remember when um I was staying with my mom over Christmas and there was like a Marvel marathon and every five seconds she was like how do they know each other who's that and I was like you've seen these movies I don't know why we're we're doing this um, but I was like most of them you can pretty much get it um you know it's, it's yeah. not too intellectual um in the first Doctor Strange it's very sort of it's obvious you know it's not horror but it is kind of very sort of like cosmic weird horror 
mm -hmm. um in a way so that's kind of fun um but um yeah no i'm excited to see because i think he just he yeah obviously the spider-man movies weren't very horror forward but the few moments he got to sort of like shine mm -hmm. uh, in there i thought were really well done that's cool yeah i mean even like the, like the aesthetics of just like the trailer and the promo stuff for multiverse of madness like you can tell like oh this is a definitely a darker vibe than most traditional mcu movies yeah uh, well and yeah and i think um I, I think i don't know much about it but i think moon knight as well is supposed to be a little bit heavier oh okay and that sort of thing i know a lot of people were like is it going to be an r-rated sort of jessica jones type um thing because it is, is pretty dark but um yeah what about you what have you been up to um i saw the northman um okay. for horror adjacent um excellent film i mean robert eggers just doesn't miss at this point I think he's just not capable of it. Yeah. How's Anya Taylor doing? She's great. Great. She's I mean, great. I knew she would be, but I just like to check. She's great. Um, um, she's a, I think her best moment comes like right at the turn of the second to the third act, mm -hmm. uh, where she just like really shines in a moment uh, opposite Skarsgård, who was also excellent um Nicole Kidman is there yes <laughs> Willem Dafoe Willem Dafoe's there he's he plays an absolute nut job go figure <laughs> York and here's there as well York is there she doesn't do a whole lot she, I, from the of, trailer it seemed like she was playing Bjork basically yeah yeah she has like one scene um that's like plot important and then she's gone um, and I was like all right yeah sure yeah, they could uh, only afford her for the one day of filming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was good. It's like you know, I mean, it's it's a gory, movie. bloody, and Viking. Yeah, and it's mm -hmm. dark. And I just got off of finishing uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, so I've been on a real Viking kick recently. You're like prime. <laughs> yeah. So, have you ever watched the show Vikings? I've heard it's good. I haven't. I thought about it after playing the game because. Some of the characters in the game, like I understood what the, the TV show was about after playing the game, like what is specifically, like what period of history it's specifically supposed to be. And a couple, several characters from like Vikings are also like obviously in the characters in AC Valhalla. But um, I don't know. I, I, I was listening to a sort of a, um, it was like a, a podcast about like true Norse mythology and Norse history from like a, a guy who's a professor professor in um Denmark and then a guy who's just like a like an enthusiast and an academic for it in um York and it's interesting because they do a lot of refuting of like you know Vikings were multicultural Vikings were multiracial you know women had important roles um mm -hmm. we hate Nazis and all these other things because I know like that can be like a real touchy like at this point it's kind of like you know, people will have these like tattoos and stuff that it's like, for them, it's like their heritage. And then for other people, it's like something yeah. terrible. Yeah. But I've been really, been on a big Viking kick. Nice. Well, you're I feel gonna, like as a kid, I never had my Viking phase and now it's happening. You're going to thrive in it now. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, the, I mean, you will love the Northmen then. Right. Um, yeah, and I've also just I watched a color up a, a couple other. Other, yeah. I was like, was I glitching? Was my computer glitching? No, <laughs> no that, was just, that was just me glitching. That was my mouse glitching. Um, a couple other newer-ish movies. I watched um, Choose or Die on Netflix. Just one I night. I watched the trailer for that, and it seemed really interesting. It was, it was fine. It was, yeah. it was like... Um, it seemed you know, like it would be a fun kind of stupid, like was, um, amongst yeah. the stupid movies, it seemed like it would be fun. And also it it's fun. like, oh, look at, look at Asa Butterfield. Yeah, 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 it was, it was fun, stupid. It was like, you know, you've seen like this movie like five or six other times, but this had like mm-hmm. its little twist on it. So yeah, that was fine. Um, I also watched The Cellar on Shudder. I, I almost watched that last week during my recovery. Yeah. And I just never got around to it. Um, pretty standard, nothing like out of the box or anything, but a decent, like decent atmosphere. Um, it was nice to see uh Elisha Cuthbert get back to horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always liked her. Um, and then I also watched See for Me, um, which is also on Shutter right now. Okay. Uh, that's probably out of the this particular crop, the one I would recommend the most. Um it's about this young woman who um, she happens to be blind and she um, takes like house sitting and pet sitting jobs. Um, and so she takes this one job at this like huge remote um, house out in the woods. Um, and she's sort of very stubborn and she um, wants to prove that she can do everything that a sighted person can do like without assistance, Mm -hmm. but she ends up locking herself out of the house accidentally. So she has to download this app called See For Me where Mm -hmm. a sighted person can help a blind individual. I remember seeing um, trailers for this actually, now that you say that. Yeah, yeah. So she does that real quick, but then later that night, some very bad people break into the house. And so she again goes back to the app to have you know this this sighted person on the other end like be her eyes, right. navigate around the house and you know the home invaders and such. And there's kind of a twist that took it in an interesting direction. Um, so I recommend it. Interesting. Okay. I feel like I, I meant to mention before, and I probably I don't know if I have or haven't. I finally finished Archive eighty one. Is that the number? Oh yeah. Um, interesting. You know, I don't really care that it's not being renewed, but it does make me want to kind of listen to the podcast. Yeah, I've heard, I've seen a couple of folks say that like, like the show was fine, but the podcast is much better. Yeah. So. Um, I'm like halfway through. I need to just power through and finish the last three or four episodes. It, it started to lose me a bit. Yeah, no, it definitely, there were periods where I was like, I'm not, you know. Yeah. Like, you can kind of just figure out what's going on or like, you know, think to yourself, you're like, okay, if I'm right, this is kind of boring. Yeah, and that's, I guess it was because like, I, I felt like I was so ahead of the characters. Yeah. So then it just gets like boring and frustrating watching them figure out what like we already know. Is right, going. right. Because the, the, the sh- it's not like, you know, a film where it's like, you're supposed to be ahead of the characters. It's like, 
no it's like yeah it's like oh what's what's going on what's the mystery and i'm like well it's this um and also i think the, the last time we recorded the stranger things trailer came out yeah yeah um i'm very excited yeah hop taken by russians as we suspected hop. he's my son hop. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget. I, 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 I never will. Hair. Crazy hair. Everyone has fire. Hair. Yeah, that's the, yeah, I know. It is the fourth season, it's fourth installment. Like something about that means you have to have terrible hair. Yeah. So excited um, for that. It's always fun when that comes back. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're doing the everyone's doing this now. It's kind of annoying, but they're they're splitting it into two parts. I think that's uh-huh. something Netflix specifically started doing, and I don't know why, because it did it um, with a couple of shows, and now it's just like ordering them that way. Like I don't, I don't get it. They just did it with um, the final season of Ozark. It was split yeah. into two parts. They they just dropped the last half, um, which was unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the well, and it's you know it's, we'll never know because Netflix doesn't publish its uh, right. statistics, so we have no idea what's driving it. But um, except for that little uh, little bleep there about how they lost like a million because people are sharing passwords, and like maybe it's because it costs twenty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> I have a whole theory about Netflix and why they're doomed, but this is not the time for that now, i think of the, the streaming platforms they're definitely like they used to be sort of a haven for like finding weird horror films and now i feel like i do better on hulu and obviously shutter for that so yeah their horror selection is really bad on netflix yeah but um but yeah, yeah. but stranger things at least stranger <laughs> things yeah we still you know they're gonna finish that at least yeah, they said season five will be the last season. Which, good. Right. I think all shows should be five seasons max. Yep. And, and having, watching, I'm in the third, more than halfway through the third season of Smallville right now, and I was like, God, do you remember when we had 20 episodes? 20 seasons, I know. So much filler. Like, insane. Insane. I think about that with like shows I kind of like fell off of that I want to go back to or like shows I've always wanted to get to that are like from that era or slightly older and I go and I look and I'm like oh my god there's seven seasons and they each have 23 episodes that's how I feel about Smallville I was like there are 200 episodes there's 10 seasons of 22 episodes over 200 episodes and then like trying to get people into because I've tried many times to get you to like invest more in like Buffy I feel and it's yeah. like I can't even blame you for not doing it because it's it's and that's slog. part of that's part of the wall because I'm just like oh my god there's so many episodes though. yeah and the first season is like a half season because it was a mid-season replacement show yeah. so it's like the first 12 episodes are far from the show's best right so it's so like, okay. it's like okay, I have to get through yeah. that and then I have to yeah so but I was thinking about that I was like oh my god I I hate that we used to have 22 episode seasons. I know. Now we're like, now it's like, okay, and here's our eight episode season, and here's our six episode season, and everyone's like, yay! Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Wow. All right. I think, are we ready? I think we've kind of been dragging our feet a little bit because 
of our main topic. The best part of talking about this is going to be doing the summary of what happens. Yeah. Because <laughs> sort of like, analysis, I really had to um, drag I was stretching. the barrel. Um, and even the legacy, there's like one interesting thing about it. And then once it's said, it's like, okay. I know. I was like, I was diving deep for like fun production facts. I was like, what's cool that we can pad this out with? <laughs> Which is why, again, it's okay that this is the episode that may have questionable audio quality. Exactly. And uh, chatters, we're still going to have a fun time. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you do partake, maybe you should get yourself a little sippy yeah, sip. Think of it as a booze and booze light. There we go. It's been a moment since we've done one. So. This would have been a good uh, a good one to to do if we were doing a sort of more mainstream one instead of a we usually do kind of like indie. Yeah, like, something like things. lesser known. This is a good one. This would be a good one. All right, let's do it. Um, Yes, our main topic of discussion is 1993's Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, the ninth installment in the Friday the 13th franchise. Um, Let's delay one final time by taking a listen to the trailer. Horror has many faces. Death wears many different masks. But pure evil wears only one. And this is your final chance to see it. Jason goes to hell. The final Friday. All right, that didn't buy us a ton of time, but we <laughs> we tried our best. So, okay. Um, when did you first see this movie and what were your initial thoughts? I'm one that um I feel like showed up a lot on um AMC when they used to do like their old I know now they're doing it again now but like their old old like October like and they would just play all the like deep deep sequels Mm -hmm. they would play this and they would play Jason X all the time yes it was like there was a period of time where I I assumed they only had like the rights for the new line Friday Mm -hmm. one so yeah it would just be like this and jason x like back to back and then like one or two nights in october you'd get like freddie versus two. yeah or something yeah or part yeah or part two or something yeah it was like if it was like on halloween itself <laughs> right yeah when like you didn't actually have time to sit down and watch but like you could put it on as background noise yeah <clears throat> um so yeah like i think in that regard like i basically saw it in pieces before like i actually sat down and like watched it fully and I am somebody who like approached the Friday the 13th franchise as like seeing them out of order so understanding different bits mm-hmm. of them like obviously knowing like as we all do it's like oh yeah Jason obviously eventually becomes the killer most people assume he was the killer in the first one yada yada but 
yeah. this is one where it's like, oh, so there's some sort of crazy, <laughs> like, the, like there's nothing like you, you, you don't have to see any of the ones leading up to it to really, you know, it has all of its own inner mythology, its own inner like, um, uh, you know, like intelligence and you know i guess it, it it comes full circle like it you know it doesn't not make sense in its own world but um <laughs> <laughs> it's just what a world that it lives in yeah <laughs> and i think i do remember the first time like sitting down to watch it i was like yeah like okay jason goes to hell and you're thinking it's going to be like some crazy movie where like you know like he's in some sort of hellscape to, no, no no it's not no he's in a diner yeah <laughs> as like every random cast member mm -hmm. god <laughs> um yeah honestly I, I don't think my experience is all that similar i feel like i came to this movie piecemeal um over the years and at some point, you know, you know, probably some quiet afternoon in October when I had nothing going on, I could probably just like finally caught it from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. um, but I really hate this movie. <laughs> I think it's the worst one. I think it's so bad. Um, but I do think it's kind of fun to talk about. So. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into what makes this movie so crazy let's go over the story of the franchise so far <laughs> even though i feel i'm like doing like the like chart in my head right this is like it just helps because i think it really gives people that context of what makes this movie so bonkers yes so the story so far, Shatterers, of course, in the original 1980 film, Friday the 13th, we see the killing spree of Pamela Voorhees, played by Betsy Palmer, who murders the counselors preparing to reopen Camp Crystal Lake, where her son Jason drowned on June 13th, 1957. After all her friends are killed, final girl Alice Harding, played by Adrian King, fends off Mrs. Voorhees and decapitates her with a machete. Icon. In part two, released one year later, Jason, played by Steve Dashkowitz, revealed to be alive and fully grown, having been living in the woods around Crystal Lake, finds Alice and kills her to avenge his mother and returns to Crystal Lake to guard it from all future intruders. Five years later, a new group of campers arrives at the lake to set up a new camp, and Jason slaughters them all, save Jenny Field, Amy Steele, who finds a cabin in the woods with the severed head of Mrs. Voorhees set up in a shrine. Ginny fights back and slashes a machete through Jason's shoulder, leaving him for dead. And uh, what happens in part three, Ms. Mill? Part three, okay. So this is our introduction to, oh my God, what is his name? Tommy Jarvis. No, part, that's part four. That's part four? Wait, what part are we on? Three. What happens in part three? <laughs> All right, I got you, I got you. Isn't Baby Tommy Jarvis in that one? Baby Tommy Jarvis is part four. And what? then Grown Up Tommy Jarvis is part five and six. Wow. See? 
Okay, wait a minute. Why we do this? So this is this is you thought this was for you, Chatters, but it's actually <laughs> for me. It's really for all. Oh, of this is rocking my world, part three. Yeah, um, I've got the. We've got the. We've got the 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 little our handy guide in our document. Yeah. So, uh, oh, okay. This is the one with the the bikers. Yes. This was another is- one that also ended up on TV a lot, by the way. And I somehow always caught the scene at the gas station. It was kind of like always, always. always. It was kind of like being halfway through the second task. Yeah. Go back to Goblet. Um. Okay. Okay. my memory here. So we've got a new cast of um characters, but we start out kind of like it, it's one of those things where you know it it starts out right afterwards. Right. Um. Jason has survived. Don't worry. He's he's badly injured, but he's alive. Um, and um, he's still hanging around uh, Crystal Lake, uh, murdering shop owners, that sort of things. Um, and basically, a group of friends uh, is spending the week um, or the weekend or other, I guess, um, at the cabin. And it's like a, a weird sort of group, um, you know, teenagers, the usual stuff. Um, and basically i'm trying to figure out what is what is the what is the 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 hook here why is this not sticking in my brain it's the there really isn't one it's basically just the hockey mask it's that's when he gets the hockey mask and chris dana kimmel like remember like she was attacked by him like the year before or whatever Right. Yeah. That's so like, the big no. one here is it's sort of a rehash of what happens in the second one with new characters. The bikers right. really stick in my brain for some reason. Yeah. Um, the bikers. Then they come back a little bit. They're kind of like annoying, but um, he gets the hockey mask here because famously, you know, unlike other slashers, you know, you have with Friday the 13th, um, it takes several movies to piece together like the quintessential uh, character that everyone assumes kind of existed from the beginning. So right. first movie, no Jason. Second movie, grown up Jason. Third movie, mask. Mask, finally. <laughs> and and we're there. Um, yeah, so okay. So then Friday the 13th, part four. Right, the final chapter. The final chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first movie in this franchise to have the word final in it. <laughs> right. So this takes place after the events, the like, you know, again, right after the events of part three, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Jason's like body is just like pulled, I guess, uh, you know, taken to the morgue and much like many, I think this is what happened in, um, was it in the H2O sequel where, or I guess the H2O sequel, the Halloween H2O sequel, we don't see it, but it's like assumed that like Jason, because you're not Jason, Mike, my buddy Mike, um, <laughs> traded bodies with the ambulance driver. Yeah, um, we see that in the in the beginning of Resurrection. Yeah, so yeah. he goes to the morgue. Um, he spontaneously comes back to life in the hospital. Um, you know, as one does. Um, he hmm. goes about killing people, and he returns. Uh, to, you know, his sort of dwelling at Crystal Lake. Um, there's teens who are there um, to, you know, do shit, I guess. And the the Jarvises live nearby or also stay. Yeah, they live next door. 
um, which includes Trish, who is like a young woman, and then her younger brother Tommy, who's a little bit of a little bit of a weirdo, but like in in the way that we were all weirdos, except he was cooler than the rest of us because he makes these these great model masks and model like horror props and stuff, and he's you know very much an outsider and. Death ensues, uh, basically what happens at the end is Tommy sort of dons a mask and attacks Jason, or he he dons a mask, or no, I'm sorry, he shaves his head. Yeah. And he pretends to be Jason's mother, or he speaks to Jason in some way. Like somehow his appearance and Jason, they connect in Jason's broken brain um, to, you know, get Jason to... Uh, sort of be off guard uh, before he attacks him and like stabs the shit out of him repeatedly. Um, and it ends with him sort of screaming and going insane. This is, you know, like a 12 year old boy. Um, and that's not, not the last we see of him. It's not. Um, it, is the, it is the death of Jason, the canonical death of jason Voorhees. Um, a canonical death yeah right right yeah uh but then in a new beginning which is the fifth friday the 13th um we find an older tommy jarvis uh now committed to uh mental halfway house um as a result of the trauma from the events of part four um, and while he's there, a series of murders takes place at the house and people suspect that it maybe it's Jason come again or people suspect it's Tommy and he's like kind of snapped, but it's actually revealed to be a local paramedic named Roy Burns, who was using the Jason persona to get revenge for the death of his son, um, who one of the patients at the institution killed several years prior. And everyone collectively goes, what? Yeah, this is sort of a proto <laughs> version of what ends up happening in this movie, but less, um, yeah, crazy. less bonkers. Then in the sixth part, Jason lives. Um, Tommy is released from uh, the institution and digs up Jason's grave in order to burn the body. Um, we're not entirely sure why he's so adamant about that, but he is. Um, but he inadvertently resurrects Jason when lightning strikes an iron fence post that he rammed into Jason's body. I love that. Reanimates. It's so insane and dumb, but I love the atmosphere of it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's so ridiculous. I mean, I think we talked about this before, but it's like Jason is buried like with his mask on. He's buried like, like in like as in carb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, like not in a, it was, I don't even know if he was in a casket or he was just in the ground. I can't remember if he had to open a casket. I think he's just like in the ground. Yeah, they just like, like they just like pushed him in there. Yeah, they're just like goodbye. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, but yes, and so now Jason is undead, and he immediately goes back to Crystal Lake, and he murders the new summer camp workers. Um, and Tommy comes in pursuit and eventually defeats Jason by chaining him to a boulder at the bottom of the lake, though it's revealed to us that Jason is still alive down there. So then in the seventh installment, The New Blood, the telekinetic and traumatized Tina Shepard attempts to resurrect her father who drowned at Crystal Lake, but in doing so, she accidentally reawakens Jason uh, who has been forgotten under the lake for an indeterminate amount of time. 
Um, and so Jason once, once again embarks upon a rampage, uh, killing some rowdy teens who are having a birthday party at the lake. Um, and after a battle against Tina and her psychic powers, Jason is once again imprisoned at the bottom of Crystal Lake, which brings us to the previous installment, uh, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, where Jason is resurrected and freed from the lake by a faulty underwater electrical cable, and then proceeds to stalk a group of students on their senior class cruise from Crystal Lake, New Jersey to Manhattan, uh, and along the way, he kills the ship's crew and a majority of the students. And once in New York, Jason chases Rennie and Sean into the sewers where he eventually meets his end when he melts away amidst a flood of toxic waste. You know. You know. I had a, my one friend was, you know, when I was rewatching this, um, you know, explaining everything. Um, she was like, I enjoy how Friday the 13th is the same energy as Fast and the Furious, where it's just like, we're going to do whatever the hell we want. Pretty much. They, there's like no rules. And like what's kind of great and kind of like, like sad is also like the amount of time like fans have dedicated to making it all make sense, like internally. Yeah. Just like, but here's where it just like really jumps such a ship presumably the ship from part eight um which as we talked about in our episode on jason takes manhattan did horrendously at the box office um it's the worst performing entry in the franchise to date um it did so terribly in fact that paramount um who owns the rights to the series actually uh sells the character rights to New Line Cinema after Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, New Line were the owners and are the owners of A Nightmare on Elm Street. But interestingly, Paramount retains the rights to the franchise title. They only sell the character rights of Jason to New Line, which is why the next three installments in the series don't have Friday the 13th in their title. Um, I was also trying to explain that as well. I was like, there's some squidgy rights things and I don't fully understand it, but for whatever reason, it's so complicated that nobody's really sure. <laughs> yeah, basically. Rights to what? Yep. It's super messy. It's super complicated. When we finally get to the remake, the 2009 remake, which is the last Friday the 13th movie we've seen, We'll talk about like the state of the rights today and why there hasn't been another movie. I know um, LeBron James's uh, film company was interested in. Yes. <laughs> circa like uh, 2018. Could you imagine? I hope he's in it. I hope he plays Jason. <laughs> That'd be kind of incredible. Could you imagine? I'd, I'd pay to see it. Yeah. All right, so, so after the sale from Paramount to New Line, longtime Friday the 13th producer Frank Mancuso departs the series. Um, he had been around since part two, um, basically the executive producer on all the films. And to take his place uh, comes in director of the original film, Sean S. Cunningham, um, who had been absent entirely from the franchise since directing the original film. Um, 
And like, what a film to come back for, you know? <laughs> what if he like hadn't seen any of them? Like, any of the other ones after his? And he's just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so with New Line now owning uh, Jason, the idea of Freddy versus Jason comes back into conversation. Uh, the idea had originally been proposed in 1987 by Sean Cunningham. Um, and it was given some serious consideration uh, by New Line at the time before they decided to um, eventually set it aside because they wanted to have a lead-in film before they did the crossover. Um, because you have to think about this movie came out in 1993. Mm -hmm. Jason Takes Manhattan came out in 89. That's it, a four-year gap where there had been no Friday the 13th movies. So I think like New Line was concerned about like, we want to like get Jason basically like back in the public eye before we do a crossover. Because there had never been a gap this long between Friday the 13th movies since the series started. Um, so that's the theory about why they didn't do the crossover immediately. Um, so they settle on part nine being a lead in film for that. And uh, they bring in screenwriter Jay Hughley, um, who had worked on Magnum PI and wrote the movie Street Justice. And he writes a treatment for the film that centers around Elias Voorhees, the brother of Jason. Um, even though in like the comic books and the expanded media, Elias Voorhees is Jason's father. Um, Elias Jr. <laughs> Elias Jr., there we go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so this story was about Elias Voorhees digging up his uh, dead brother, Jason, and then eating his heart and becoming Jason. So elements that were kept, but you know, not quite an exact matchup. Um, this version of the screenplay uh, came from an idea from uh, the director, Adam Marcus, um, who had also uh, originally conceived of the Steven character from this movie being Tommy Jarvis from parts four through six. But New Line did not own the rights to the character of Tommy Jarvis, so they couldn't use him. Um, which I feel like I see that in Steven. Mm -hmm. Like he's very similar to like the grown-up version of Tommy. I also even feel like just from like the physical casting. Yeah. That's a that's a good point too. Mm -hmm. um, and so um he really turns in his screenplay, but Cunningham doesn't like it. Uh, so he brings in Dean Laurie, um, who would go on to write Major Pain uh, and work on Arrested Development um, and iZombie, as well as the movie Drive Angry. And Laurie writes an entirely new script that takes out Elias Voorhees completely um, and keeps sort of the idea of this like body switching or other people like becoming the spirit of Jason. Um, and then Leslie Boehm, who wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, did a polish of the scripts. And uh, Louis Abernathy wrote the opening scene, but I believe he's uncredited. Um, 
so then Adam Marcus, uh, who was initially considered too young to direct, he was 23 at the time, he had just finished film school. Could you imagine directing as 23? No, no. Like, it's kind of like, yeah, they were kind of right, I feel like, that yeah. he was too young. This is the worst entry in the franchise, I think. <laughs> um, he basically got the job because he was friends with Sean Cunningham's son. Um, and so Cunningham like vouched for him to New Line. Um, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. So um, he comes on board as director, you know, his ideas taking shape in the screenplay, but there ends up being actually some contention uh, between Marcus and Cunningham. And this was over the idea of getting rid of the mask and you know the whole idea of Jason shifting between bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcus claims that it was Cunningham's idea to do that. Cunningham has claimed in interviews that he warned against getting rid of the hockey mask because even though that wasn't a part of his original film in any way, he recognized how iconic it had become to the franchise. I feel like on this, I'm more inclined to believe the not 23 year old. Same. <laughs> Same. It definitely feels like that thing of like, you know, you're young, make a mistake, and you're kind of like, well, I was just doing what I was told, you know, like rather than like taking ownership of it. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh yeah, I fucked up. We should have had the mask, you know? Yeah. So, um, and we can talk about this a little bit later or now or whatever, but I do think it's definitely a mistake that Jason, as we know him, is not like physically present for the majority mm-hmm. of this. Um, and then the film was uh, filmed in the um, summer of t- uh, 1992. I said 2002. No. <laughs> uh, between July 20th and September 4th. It wrapped up five days before I was born. Hey! If only you knew. <laughs> um, Henry, Henry Manfredini uh, returned to compose the score for um, Jason Goes to Hell. Uh, of course, we've talked about him a lot. He wrote the music for the first seven films, but he did not do it for the eighth uh, movie. Um, came back. Uh, the soundtrack album was released by uh, Edel Screen in 2005. You can find it um, on Somewhere. CD. I looked for it on Spotify. It's not there. So I don't know if it's available on Spotify. Yeah. Wherever um, that may be. <laughs> The score, the score for this movie doesn't stand out to me a ton. No. Um, I don't even, I'm trying to remember if I even recall any, like, because I guess they couldn't use any of this sort of, like, chi ha has or anything like that. Yeah, I I think, like, in the, the opening scene, there's, like, a quick thing of it, but then, like, I don't know, then after that, it's like, eh. yeah. Yeah. Nothing else. Nothing. Which is funny because I feel like they really leaned into the opening credits. Yeah. And like the production sort of just aesthetic of those and like could not tell you what the music sound looked like. Well, and I think, and because like when you think about what the opening scene is kind of doing, where it's like drawing you in with those classic Friday the 13th tropes and cliches, mm-hmm. and then we get sort of like the twist. Yeah of what's really going on it's like yeah it makes sense that you know there'd maybe be like a piece of the original music there or like 
I don't know. I the opening is my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and then the special effects in the film were provided by KNB Studios under the supervision of Al Magliacchetti. Jason's look for the film was modeled off of uh, a combined uh, look from his part two appearance, obviously sans the burlap sack, and uh, his look in part seven, New Blood, um, which were Greg Nicotero's two favorite depictions of the character. So he sort of just combined them for the vibe here. Um, I think the special effects get overlooked in this movie a lot, but um, I actually think they're one of the few strong points of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think they look pretty good. Um, and like, they remind me of a Cronenberg film, mm-hmm. like a lot, like when the guy melts. The, yeah, they call, um, yeah. sort of melts, yeah. Yeah, or like um, when he slams that guy's face into the grate. Like mm-hmm. there's some cool special effects in here. Um, all practical, of course, like a good 90s horror film would be. Um, so yeah, that is something I do give up to this film as it were. And then, um, yeah, I think we'll uh, go into our, um, well, should we walk through the plot or should we do the roll call? Um, let's walk through the plot that way people know okay. who these people are. An excellent point you just made. <laughs> All right, uh, get us started. What have we got going on here at the beginning of Jason Goes to Hell? So there's this lady. <laughs> um, she's kind of like fucking around in a sort of house. She's like flipping the light switches. She's doing different things. She's testing different things out. She hears some noises. She's like a young, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say she's a teenager, but she's a young woman. Um, and she's just sort of, you know, doing her thing feels a little bit, um, a little bit suspicious. Um, and this is at, I believe it's at Camp Crystal Lake. Um, I don't know if they actually say that or not, but um, basically what yeah, ends up happening. When she gets there, we see her drive past the sign. The sign. I knew the yeah. sign. Somebody drove past the sign at some point. I couldn't remember if it was here. I guess we also see it later. Oh, yeah. When the teens are in the tent, I think we see it as well. Yeah, I think we see it in the opening. Yeah, Yeah. so anyway, that's where she is, regardless. She's, like, fucking around in a cabin. Right. Um, She's getting a shower, her tits are out. Yeah, she showers, she's got, like, a... I think at one point she does the whole, like, um, like, flannel on and no pants and that sort of thing. And, you know, she's doing her thing, you know, and eventually as he is wont to do, Jason appears, um, you know, and he attacks her and- uh, No she, explanation as to how yeah. he was no longer a melted away toxic child in New York. Yeah, he's just here now. Yeah. Um, and she goes into like, like sleeper agent mode, you know, like parkours <laughs> out of the house, runs um, for a good while until she gets to this sort of open field. Jason's following her and then all the lights come on and like a million SWAT guys come out um, and point their guns and they just start shooting Jason and knock him down and he's dead Um, and the whole thing was like some sort of sting operation or FBI setup or what have you. Mm -hmm. They're all so jazzed like yeah we we got Jason Voorhees we got him and 
like the news stations are talking about it. They're like, oh my God, like they got Jason, Bo you know, the body of Jason Voorhees is being taken to the local morgue. And this is being intercut with like um, sort of smash cuts of like different pieces of the credits. Um, and, uh, you know, like he's being taken into the morgue. He's in pieces. Yeah, because they blew him up. Yeah. So he's in pieces, he's badly burned, um, and they're wheeling them in, and it's like, you know, like a military, um, like, they have to do, like, weird check-ins and, like, get searched for shit to get into this morgue. And there's this, the, um, what do you call it, the mortician, the, uh, the, the sort of the man running the office. Yeah, the, um, Phil. Corp. I was like, what the, I was like, there's a word for this. Phil. Phil Corp. Yeah. Um, is... You know, doing his thing, kind of sort of going through the body, you know, speaking to his little recorder, um, talking about what he sees. And it's so, so like the first time I saw this, I thought that was his brain, the thing mm. that was beating, because it's kind of a weird shape. It's his heart. It is weird. And it's bigger than it should it's be. Huge. Just like a yeah. horse heart. <laughs> yeah. It's like what Daenerys ate in that at one episode. I was say, I was like, just like, yeah, then he goes full Daenerys. <laughs> Yeah, so um thought it was brain, it's not, it's a heart. So the heart is beating, Jason's heart. Mm -hmm. Um it's kind of has this arrhythmic beating on the table, and eventually the coroner kind of notices it and he's just really sort of staring at it for an inordinate amount of time, and then like the music sort of kicks up, and then all of a sudden he just he 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 just he downs it. He's like <laughs> narfs it down. Like he he has never eaten food before in his life, uh, and he he eats the heart. Um, and then there's this sort of strange transformation scene where he's screaming and moaning, and then these little like dots of light shoot into his body, and we're meant to understand that Jason is now inhabiting uh, this man's physical form, and he. He obviously walks out of the morgue and murders several people in the process um, and, uh, you know, gets all over the news and it's horrifying because they're not sure where the body is and all these people are dead. Yeah, because for some reason, like, they take him to a morgue in Ohio. Even though, canonically, we're supposed to be in New Jersey. Yeah. And also the FBI is based out of D.C., yeah, and then there's like this whole thing where it's just like, oh my god, and now there's like this string of bodies from Ohio to Crystal Lake. Yeah, or at but least there would be a local FBI offices in at least like Philadelphia or New York. Right. So, yeah, not sure why they felt the need to like drop that in because it really like doesn't, you know, it's a very one-off line. But yes, so he he is marching his way back to Crystal Lake in the body of this corn. Yeah. Phil. Phil. The coroner. <laughs> Put some respect on that name. Put some respect on. Um and yeah, so he's doing that in the sort of who's sort of question maybe in his path or nearby. I feel like the geography of this film is. It's very unclear. Yeah. And like how long it takes him to get back to New Jersey, or like what the deal is there. Um. But he does he does return to Crystal Lake where um, you know things are happening there, including um, the fact that um, 
um, local diner waitress, Diana Kimball, um, has just gotten the news that her daughter, um, oh my God, Jessica. Jessica. I will tell you, it really was difficult for me to keep those, any of them straight, to be honest with you. These characters. The mother, the daughter, and then the friend who watches the baby at one point at the diner. Because they're, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Diana, who is, um, I guess, she, yeah, I guess she's middle-aged. Like that was the other thing too. I was like, are you trying to tell me this woman has an adult daughter? Right. Right. And then I was kind of like, I think I was giving the movie too much credit because then I was like, okay, well maybe she like had her right out of high school. You know, it's like a small rural town. And then I was like, yeah, no, this is just, yeah. But anyway, uh, Diana, you know, she's, she's got the whole vibe of like um, lower class, like hustling working mom. She's at the diner. She, uh, she finds out her daughter is coming back to town and she's bringing her new boyfriend who happens to be like a hotshot news reporter, Robert Campbell. Um, and she's also coming with her baby, but then baby is not Robert's child. It's um, Jessica's like high school sweetheart. He's the father and his name is Steven and Steven still lives in town and he hangs out at the diner and he still wears his high school letterman jacket. Um, and if this sounds overly complicated, it's because it is. Exactly. And he, or Diana tells him that she's coming back to town. That, that Jessica's coming back to, yeah. to town. And he is like, oh my God. And he did go be brooding, I guess. Yeah. Um, and he ends up giving uh, some hitchhikers a ride, some younger teens who um, want to come hang out at what remains of Camp Crystal Lake because, you know, all the, you know, Jason is in the news. Um, the town is also capitalizing on everything that's happened with Jason. Like the diner has all these like weird menu items that, reference him they had a hockey mask like burger or something yeah like, yeah um and so he takes the teens and he drops them off at the lake they invite him to hang out but he doesn't because he has important brooding things to do mm-hmm. um and it's a, a guy and his girlfriend uh luke deborah and the friend's name is her name <laughs> shelby Shelby? No, that's that's Leslie Jordan. Oh. <laughs> oh, damn. Her name is Elizabeth? Who's Elizabeth? Her name might be Elizabeth. No, I'm sorry. Either way. I'm so sorry. Her name is Alexis. I just figured it out. Anyway. Um, and <laughs> Deborah and Luke are like the worst friends ever. They're like, we're going to take the tent and we're going to have sex. That was so bizarre to me. Yeah. Which like, she doesn't all... find it weird. She's like looking at them and laughing and you can see yeah, she's like, laughing. She's like, Yeah, she's like, oh, you. Um, but it's like, first of all, like, why did you invite her or why did you go? Like, it's the definition of being the third wheel. Um, so... <laughs> sleep outside yeah and she's like it's chill and she just she has her like shitty little like thin sleeping bag and like no pillow and she like hunkers she's down like on a rock yeah she's, she's like, like it's fine i'm fine no, look at the stars <laughs> it's like what 
Um, but then she has to take a piss. So she goes and does that. And then she gets killed. Um, or like right after she pees or something or whatever. Because remember- I think she gets killed coming back. Cause they're like, back. I feel like I, she, she gets killed like in the campsite and they just could not be bothered. <laughs> it's one of my least favorite things, which this franchise did a lot. And it's that only in horror do we show people going to the bathroom. <laughs> don't find that in any other movie genre but whatever um yeah very vulnerable time for people very vulnerable right so she gets murked um and then deborah and luke are like grinding leading up to fucking but then like he forgot a condom there's this very awkward moment where they both agree to do it without a condom i was so confused about that because he gets out the condom, but I think it's like broken or something because he's going to open it and he is I the Amazon Prime on my television has really stupid sound <laughs> situations. So I wasn't always able to hear. Um, but I'm pretty sure he it's it's like defective in some way. So yeah. Like, whatever, Maybe. fuck it. And they throw it out of the tent because later just Jason like steps on it. Yeah, he steps on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we're back to this weird, like, you know, stereotypical slasher, like, morality moment where sex equals death. Well, and it's funny that you say that, because I was thinking about that specifically that scene and the completely unnecessary back and forth about the condom. And I was yeah. like, okay, so they're having unprotected sex. And I was just like, interesting, 90s yes Planned Parenthood v Casey you know like, yeah something there. Uh, well and also just like how um prevalent AIDS was mm-hmm. in the zeitgeist and like discussions around that right. um which I have a kind of different reading on for a little bit later but it just seemed very irresponsible of the film yeah. Well, and that's what I'm wondering. Is it, was it the film just putting this in here for the sake of, I don't know, like adding a couple extra seconds to the scene or was it, you know, was it sort of a way to not necessarily make a statement, but be like, okay, like we're punishing you for having unprotected sex and that sort oh, of thing. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to just the normal sex. Right. Yeah. Almost like this is the nineties version of you know the fucking slash yeah 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 that's a good that's an interesting way to look at it yeah um but regardless uh they're not able to uh get to the end of sex because jason dispatches with both of them in pretty gory fashion she's like mid i think climax when he just Oh like, yeah, just, she's yeah. already like, ah, yeah. yeah. yeah she's That's like, right. she, it's happening. And then he sticks like a, I forget what it is, but it looks like a fucking saber. <laughs> it does. And I don't know. And then he like, kind of like almost like cuts her in half almost. Yeah. Bad. Um, yeah. And then he kills Luke as well. Um, and uh, I think some some other like some cops show up and he gets rid of them real quick um uh meanwhile uh <laughs> as like news of all of this spreads a mysterious figure a man in black 
um, a bounty hunter by the name of Creighton Duke <laughs> shows up in town. And um, he makes it very clear to um, Diana that he knows. And we're not sure like, what is it that he knows? But he knows something. And um, I think and he, he talks to- He's like, I know who you are. And yeah, I know who you are. Um, and uh, I think he also has an interaction with Steven in the same scene. Or is that later? Yeah, he has an interaction, not with Steven, I, but with um, what's his nuts, the, the news guy. Oh, with Robert. Yeah, he, they have an interview with him where they're asking. Oh, yeah, him, that's right. He, yeah, and he talks about hunting down Jason and stuff. Right, he's hunting down Jason. He says on this interview that he is the only one that knows how to kill him um, and that it will cost the reporter like $500,000 if he wants him to do it. It's very weird. It's like a weird take on like he's described as a bounty hunter, but it's like this isn't um, like you don't set the like you don't charge people for it. Like, <laughs> right. Like the bounty is set by like government officials. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he's in town and he's coming for Jason, uh, but Jason has his own agenda. And that night he shows up at Diana's house um, where she's on the phone with Jessica about like the last minute, I guess, like travel arrangements, like, oh, you just got in or blah, blah, blah. Um, and he attacks her and there's like a scuffle and Steven ends up showing up at Diana's house. I'm not sure why. He, oh no, Stephen was coming over to Diana's because she tells him at the diner she needs to tell him something and to come over to her house at 11 p.m. I guess it's like when she gets off, but. Right. Uh, so Stephen shows up for that meeting with Diana. Jason is there and he, um, Jason in the form of Phil the coroner, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and he fights him off right before Phil the coroner um, tries to possess uh, Diana with this like weird worm thing coming out of his mouth. Mm. Uh, but he's not able to do it. Uh, and he, um, he like knocks out Phil the coroner. And then like the other deputy shows up. This is how much I like, I like just watch this movie. The, and like the body disappears because he knocks him out oh, yeah. the ground and the cops show up and they're like, what the fuck is going on? Because Diana's like dead on the ground and he's the only person. Right, because she dies from her. Yeah. And he goes to point and he's like, he's right there. And you know. It's but he's classic. not. Yeah. So they right. arrest him. Right. Okay. So yeah. So they arrest him for Diana's murder. And the worm Jason thing has abandoned Phil the coroner. Or no, not yet. I see, I'm like. No, the, the Phil the coroner has escaped. He's escaped, right, okay. And so Steven is arrested um, and he's put in jail. And Creighton Duke has also been arrested. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's not explicitly- He's just also in the jail. Yeah, it's I'm not clear why. Um, and they end up sort of like commiserating in their cells together because like Creighton Duke 
like, I don't know, he says something about like, he knows why Jessica was attacked um, or like why Jason was after her. Um, and I'm just which, thinking of how the, where the scene goes and how stupid it is. Yeah. Actually, why don't you, by all means, why? <laughs> so he's in the cell and Creighton's talking some shit enough that Steven's like, okay, what's going on? And, you know, Creighton's like, it's going to cost you. <laughs> and the price for some reason of what it costs is several broken fingers from uh steven like he makes him put his hand through the bars and he he put like i don't even know what he does because he does a pulling motion so i'm like are you pulling them out of their socket like i don't know what's happening but you know he's, he's fucking with his hand and he gets through like two before he's like actually you know what that's fine this one's on me is what he says yeah i just i don't understand because like it's to creighton's benefit to share this information with steven so why is he making him like earn it also like what do you get out of this besides like it's insane it's- <laughs> yeah what does it prove i don't it's know such an insane unhinged thing to do but anyway i can't remember if it all comes out in this scene or what but just to um clear things up basically what creighton understands is that um Jason is sort of uh, invincible um, unless um, he is killed with a specific dagger by a member of his family. Um, And he's jumping between bodies. And if he gets into the body of somebody he's related to, then he will become nigh invincible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he is related to Jessica um, because her mother was... Jason's half sister. Correct. And that's why he, he tried for a second to warm his way inside Diana, but Stephen disrupted it. Um, and this is what Stephen learns, and he decides that he needs to warn Jessica um, of this insane thing. Uh, right. Which, yeah. Why does Stephen like just believe Creighton? He's like, oh, yeah, it must be Jason. He has no reason to believe that. I guess like, like he, he might have seen maybe the worm thing or seen some weird shit going on when he attacked Diana. I guess. It's still a lot to um you know accept. Because they do they do the moment where like before he gets there when Diana sees like the reflection in the mirror, which like mm-hmm. reveals the real Jason or whatever. But like Steven doesn't see that. Right. So it's all just like, why does he Right, and like Stephen, as far as Stephen knows, there's no connection between that that group of people and Jason whatsoever. Right. But then he's just like, oh yeah, this guy that just broke two of my fingers. (laughs) (laughs) He broke two of my fingers. He must be telling the truth. He must know what he's talking about. Um, So he decides he's going to break out of prison, basically. Well, yeah. I say prison. I think he's just like in a holding cell at a police department, like where they yeah. people who they've arrested but haven't charged. Right. It's just like a like a county jail or whatever. Anyway, he's he's busting out of that place. He's busting out, and he does because his friend Randy is one of the deputies. Um, it is Randy, Randy who is played by Marcus uh, Adam Marcus's brother. Correct. Yeah. Um, 
uh, Kip. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kip Marcus, yeah. And he like tricks him. He like, I don't know, he does the whole thing where like he gets his gun or whatever because he's close to the the cell bars mm-hmm. and he's like, okay, let me out and I'm gonna put you in the cell and blah, blah, blah. Um, Cause he has to go warn the mother of his child, uh, Jessica, who is now in town with her um, new boyfriend, Robert Campbell and her baby, Stephanie, or her and Steven's baby, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's like right now, um, where we end up finding out the truth about Robert because um, Jessica goes to like chill with her friend Vicky who works at the diner where Diana worked Um, and Robert goes to the Voorhees house like the ancestral Voorhees house Mm -hmm. Um, it's not entirely clear why Um, and it turns out Stephen is also there looking for evidence I don't know what exactly. Some dagger, maybe? Yeah, like I don't know exactly what's happening here, but he fails at whatever he's trying to do. He fails. I think he's looking for the dagger. He ends up finding the Necronomicon from the Evil Dead movies. (laughs) We will talk about shortly. Um, And then he hears Robert coming, so he hides. And then he hears Robert make a phone call in which Robert reveals that he stole Diana's body from the morgue Mm -hmm. and he's hidden it in the Voorhees home so that when he is there on camera later, they're gonna discover it live to boost ratings. And he like is basically like finds out, you know, we find out he's a total sleazebag and he's real gross and he's basically just interested in Jessica for this connection to the story, et cetera, et cetera. it's at this point after Steven sort of hears all of this, the truth or whatever, um, that uh, Jason in the form of good old Phil the coroner um, <laughs> bursts in uh, to the Voorhees home and um, transfers his essence. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's not Phil the coroner at this point. We missed the the transition scene. Oh yeah, he. Phil the coroner kidnaps the deputy. Yeah, so, so at some point I think this. So Jason attacks. I think it's the diner. Is what it is, and the cops are there, and they get into a fight, um, and he kills the deputy and takes over his body. Right, because he brings him. He brings the deputy to the house strips him down and shaves him and then possesses him. Yeah, I don't, it's, yeah, I, that was so weird. Yeah, cause you see him yeah. in a weird sort of torture scene where he's being like, he's held down with like straps on his forehead and he's being shaved for some reason. Why? Why? For what? Jason doesn't like face, Jason doesn't want a beard. Okay, like the I think had a little facial hair. I think so. <laughs> don't know. I don't know. It's yeah, it's a bizarre awesome. scene. Absolutely nuts. Oh uh, yeah. So it's the deputy that burst into the house at this point, and then the evil Jason spirit worm baby thing 
leaves the deputy and possesses Robert's body. Uh, <laughs> good Lord. Um, and then, um, and then I guess he just like goes about whatever his next task is, right? Because he doesn't yeah. notice Steven or, in hiding. I think he, um, Gosh, he ends up back at the jail, I think. Because there's that scene where he goes to the jail. Yeah, because there's a scene where he comes in and he kills. Oh yeah, because what's his name? Stephen finds Jessica, or she comes to the house, mm-hmm. and then Stephen is like, "Oh my god, we gotta go because Robert's fucking possessed by Jason." Right, and she, and she leaves him. Out of the car. She kicks him out of the car, and she goes to the police station, and she's like, "Oh my god." X, Y, and Z, but then right. and then Jason, Jason, I guess, understands to follow her to the right. Jason Robert comes in and murders like the entire police department, <laughs> a la like the end of Halloween four or five. Um, and then even shows up again. Even shows up again saves Jessica Mm -hmm. and then then I think this is when they go to the diner right I guess where he kills the diner the diner people and he kills all the diner people Joey and the mean boss lady yeah and um and Vicky who Vicky's the MVP honestly she's like I'll watch the baby, like I'll do the she comes out with a shotgun and shit. <laughs> like, Vicky rocks. Yeah. Um, yeah, but Jason Robert kills all of them, but they're kind of able to like fend him off. And then they yeah. find a note where baby Stephanie was like chilling. And the note is from Creighton Duke that says that he has Stephanie. <laughs> And he's taking her to the Voorhees house. And How Jessica did come get out of jail? We don't know. Nope. But uh, that Jessica needs to come there alone. So she ditches Stephen to do that. <laughs> and then what the fuck happens when she gets to the house? So she gets there and he gives her the dagger. And I, <laughs> the dagger. Yeah, I don't know where he got it from, if he had it the whole time, why it was still on his person while he was arrested. But um, he gives her the dagger and explains, I guess, I don't know if he rehashes the whole thing, but basically brings her up to speed on the situation. Um, and then, so they're doing that. And then Jason has taken yet another he's gone into like another police officer and he uh, follows them to the Voorhees house and there's like um, sort of like a scuffle with Duke and Jessica and um, the, you know, one of the police officers is asked by Jason and one of them's not. Um, she kills the one who isn't with the dagger. Yeah, she the sheriff. Him. She like it's it's like I guess it's supposed to be unclear to her like which one it is and she stabs the sheriff or he accidentally gets stabbed but he's not 
Yeah, because like the other one, like is like, oh, it's not me. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, like, yeah they're trying to do like a weird little like thing situation. Um, yeah, but uh, she stabs him. Um, and then she fucking drops it. Um. Yep. So then, uh, Jason Which, like, now, what is like? Yeah, so like he's like possessing the other deputy and he's like, oh, it's not me, Jessica. So that, but that's like Jason. So like, is that the first time Jason technically speaks? Right. <laughs> like he can talk. That's yeah. something to, to, to wonder about there. So um, Jason's still in the body of the other police officer, tries to like go after the baby. Stephen shows up and- um, Again, Stephen the king of last second save. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> shows up and um like decapitates him and now like the the thing like the weird like alien thing that slithers about and and infects people has grown into like a sort of like infant that can like crawl across the floor so (laughs) that comes out of the headless body and um is trying to like make its way you know about the house i guess um you know I guess it's going for um, Diana's body because they're oh, like, right. oh my God, does it have to be a living person? Like there's this weird revelation, I guess, where it doesn't have to be like a living body, which seems really to not make much <laughs> sense. But um, so they sort of like regroup and they're like, okay, we have to stop that. Um, uh, so Jessica has dropped the dagger as we said and like in trying to retrieve it she has like thrown it into the <laughs> um so they have to go down and get it duke sort of runs like interference and he um like holds jason off until jason kills him um yeah because jason has been like reborn yeah jason is jason now um because he got inside Rosalind diana's dead for diana yeah yeah um, so he's Jason again, and anyway, he he basically squeezes Duke to death, um, and then he heads down for Jessica. Um, Stephen, again, like trying to distract him, like gets in a scuffle with him uh, as Jessica gets the dagger, and eventually she's able to get him just in time for him to not kill. <laughs> he was about to kill Stephen, <laughs> which might have been satisfying, but. Gets him, and uh, as this is happening, uh, like the this sort of like dead the souls of the dead people that Jason. I don't know what if it is. It just the people that he possessed, or is it like everyone he's ever killed? I interpret it as like all of his victims over the last nine films. So all these sort of like souls are released, or whatever. Um, and these like weird fucking hands come out of the floor and are doing a real drag me to hell. This is where the title comes from. Uh, Jason's getting like dragged down into um, the ground. Um, you know, Stephen and Jessica are like, oh, thank God. They walk up to the sunset with their baby. And then there's sort of a little, sort of a little epilogue. What, yeah. uh, what happens in the epilogue? Yeah, so Jessica and Steven are off into the sunset. We kind of go back to like the little sort of like clearing in the forest where 
Jason was pulled to hell. Um, we see the mask sort of like peeking out of the dirt, some wind blows it away. A dog comes by and sniffs it real quick and leaves. And then all of a sudden, the finger-knived, gloved hand of Freddy Krueger shoots up out of the ground, grabs the hockey mask, and pulls it back down into hell. As we hear the iconic laugh of Robert Englund as Freddy. And that's how the film ends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A tease. Yeah, all of our, our very, uh... It's a jointed summary. It's not a, it's not a film that makes sense. It's not a film that makes sense. Um, yeah. So uh, as to who makes up this film, um, in billing order, our roll call, we've got John DeLamay as Stephen Freeman. Any thoughts on the character and or I mean, LeMay's performance? After you said that he was like originally conceived as being Tommy Jarvis, I could really see it. Because yeah. I feel like he's really, like he's just a blank character and this actor is playing a sort of version of Tommy Jarvis. Yeah. I'm not, it would like, also explain if it was Tommy Jarvis, why he believes all this stuff. So like, like immediately and is willing to just be like yep yeah this makes sense to me yeah it would be it would be a lot more sort of fluid that way um i feel like yeah i feel, feel like steven is fine um i think the performance is fine i don't understand the jacket and <laughs> why, why he's wearing it all the time but like it's doing good work. I give it best supporting jacket. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, and then um, after him, we have Carrie Keegan as Jessica Kimball, um, the niece of Jason. I feel like all three of these women, like it just was so hard for me to keep them straight in my head, especially too, because Vicky, I think we actually meet first. Yes. So it's like really confusing i mean she did fine it just like you could have replaced any one of them with any of the others in it you know? yeah they i feel like they were did what they thought was like a bait and switch like introducing vicky and then even like diana and like kind mm -hmm. of presenting them as like our potential like focal female characters but then being like surprise it's actually this third option jessica yeah. and it's like why um yeah carrie keegan apparently got in quite the dispute with um adam marcus on set uh because he wanted her to um, appear topless in her shower scene um and she um you know she said that when she had signed on for the film like you know she and her agent had negotiated no nudity and i guess you know there was a a clash there um, to the point where like she walked off set at one point. Yeah, she got the director is a 23-year-old child who's like exactly, yeah. who doesn't know how to like, yeah. Um, she also got injured during one of the stunts 
um, which I think added to her resentment. But apparently they like squashed their beef by the time the movie premiered. And like now they're on good terms. Um, but I guess it was tense there for a while. Um, next in the billing order, we have Allison Smith as Vicki Sanders. Honestly, she should have been like the main person. I, I agree. Like she, was, she was more personable than the others. I agree. I think, you know, we don't spend a ton of time with her, but there's something interesting about her. Like, she kind of like resents Jessica in that scene mm -hmm. where she comes back because she's like, why haven't you like contacted me or whatever? Mm -hmm. Then, like, she's chill enough. She offers to watch the baby. She goes into like total badass mode when Jason shows up at the diner. Like she picks up a spike. I'm like, why is there a spike in a diner? Yeah. <laughs> or spike or diner spikes. Yeah. Uh, but she's cool. Justice for Vicky. Mm -hmm. um, then we have Stephen Culp as Robert Campbell, the sleazy reporter and the, mm -hmm. Jessica's boyfriend. Yeah, he's fine. He seems like a sleazy reporter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he's fine. Um, when he's playing Robert as Jason, it was giving me slight like T-1000 vibes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that was intentional on his part, but mm. it's kind of what I was getting. Um, then we have Billy Bush as Sheriff Landis. Uh, I don't have any major notes. All the police officers blur together in my brain. Yeah, pretty much. Sorry to them. Um, then we have a triple billing, um, which is Rusty Schwimmer as Joey B, the matron of the diner. Um, Leslie Jordan as Shelby B, her husband and cook. Mm -hmm. And then Andrew Block as Deputy Josh. I liked the diner owner couple. Like, I liked that they were just sort of like a weird little, like, um, she was insane. Like, she was really, she was a mean, horrible person. <laughs> the, the diner scenes and the characters therein gave me some, like, Twin Peaks, David. Yeah, yeah. like, overacting yeah like insane like they're weird they're quirky you know yeah and i was just like i don't know i mean twin peaks obviously would have just been super huge at this point yeah in the 90s so i was just like is this intentional i don't know um but apparently those roles were originally written in reverse um where joey was to be played by a man and shelby was to be played by a woman but when Rusty Schwimmer and Leslie Jordan were cast, they were like, actually, this could be fun to switch them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they did. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Um, then we have a quadruple billing next of Kip Marcus as Randy Parker, Richard Gant as Phil the Coroner, Adam Craner as Ward, and Julie Michaels as Elizabeth Marcus. Yeah. Little yeah. corner, insane. Insane. Um, even before he got the test. Even before, yes. Uh, noted character actor Richard Gant as Phil. Mm -hmm. uh, 
yeah, I think I don't I don't really have a problem with anybody's performance in this film, like yeah. acting wise. It's more yeah, just like I think the writing is the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we get Kane Hodder and he gets an as, so he's Kane Hodder as Jason. Um, obviously, like he himself not really on screen aside from the beginning and the end of the film. Yeah. Um, but apparently he did a lot of direction for the other actors that had to play Jason, um, you know, kind of giving them some advice on like, oh, like this is how he moves or this is how he, re he would react to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Culp, um, Stephen Culp was apparently like really dismissive of him, like, and like the coaching. He was like, why would I listen to you? You're just a stunt guy. Um, which was like, all right, you don't need to be a dick. Yeah. But um, thoughts on Hotter um, and his third performance as Jason. Yeah, I mean, I saw once somebody compared, and this was saying more about, um, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy who currently plays James Bond or just finished playing James Bond. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, thank you. Um, but it compared Kane Hodder and Daniel Craig in terms of like their franchises where they both were playing these like established iconic characters at very weird sort of like meta slash experimental times for uh, their, uh, their the, the, the series and the character. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I do think it's interesting that Kane Hodder has sort of become like the Jason. Mm -hmm. um, and for a while I was like, is it just because he's played him like the most times? Like, or is it because like, you know, because he started, he like, he came on like late, like he starts in part seven. Yeah. So it's like, is it just that like most people's first Friday the 13th movies that they see are the later sequels. So they're like more attached to him mm. as Jason. And I don't, I don't know what it is, but. Yeah, cause I feel like when I see like sort of talking heads with this stuff, he's usually in those, like when they're doing some sort of bit about Friday the 13th, like it'll be, it's more often than not him being sort of like the Jason guy they get. Yeah, he's very much become the face of the franchise. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe because like he just embraced the role. Like I know a couple of the earlier Jasons were like, like they didn't take it seriously or they felt kind of embarrassed to like have that on their resume. But I think he like really respected the role. Um, I don't know. He's also supposed to be apparently like really nice in person, like yeah. at fan conventions and stuff. And like, I think he does a lot of work with like children's hospitals, so. Can you imagine you're in a children's hospital and Jason? <laughs> <laughs> like he does one of those days where he comes to meet the kids and he's just Jason. He's, he comes from set or something. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. I think he was, uh, he was burned severely, Kane Hodder, um, mm -hmm. at one point in his life. So I think he like talks to kids about like, 
it's okay if you look different or if you mm-hmm. blah 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 anyway um then after him in the credits uh we have aaron gray she gets an and and aaron gray as diana kimball um fine again sort of like the weird bait and switch thing um i feel like this time around i was like did we actually need diana like or could we have just not just had like it was like a weird like extra just because again like it's weird it's complicated so early and like we're more interested in like even vicky than i think her yeah. So. Um, yeah, really weird. Um, and then there's a second and, and it's an and as, which is and Stephen Williams as Creighton Duke. <laughs> um, Stephen Williams, another big character actor um, with a pretty long resume. Um, he was on X-Files, he was in The Leftovers. Um, he's done a lot. Um, wild performance in this movie for a wild character, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a fun production note that we can just do right now. Tony Todd auditioned for this role. Um, did not get it. I have some thoughts on how I think that would have gone, but I'm going to ask you first. <laughs> I feel like it would have been, and maybe this is just me like really picturing him in specific roles, but I just see it as sort of like less of a crazy, like physical bounty hunter feeling role like this guy has and more of like a sort of intellectual, like, you know, like guy with the suede patches who's like, I know, Mm -hmm. I know about Jason. (laughs) Yep, I feel like Tony Todd would have played it like, a bit more like serious kind of like that academic angle yeah like Stephen Williams is doing like this like very light like southern twang thing because he's kind of like a cowboy you know he's got his like big duster or whatever yeah and like in one of his first scenes he's pulling out like a sort of like folding like one of those like pocket knife but yeah knife thing yeah at the diner, right? When he's like being yeah. a, everybody for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wild. And then just a quick rundown for the rest of the cast. We have James Gleason as Agent Abernathy. Uh, Dean Laurie, um, the writer, as Eric Pope. Adam Marcus, the director, as Officer Bish. Mark Thompson as Officer Mark. Brian Phelps as Officer Brian. Blake Conway as Officer Andel. Madeline Curtis as Officer Ryan, Paul Devine as Paul, Michelle Clooney as Deborah, Michael B. Silver as Luke, Catherine Abbott as Alexis, Jonathan Penner as David, and Brooke Schur as Stephanie Kimball, the baby. The baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, some other fun production notes. Um, uh, Adam Marcus, the director, in addition to being friends with Sean Cunningham's son, or probably because of that, was a coffee runner on Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Um, so he was technically you know, working on this franchise before this movie. Um, yeah, and probably the f- funnest fact for this movie, 
um, the Necronomicon shows up. Yeah. Uh, in the Voorhees home, uh, Stephen sees it. He flips several of its pages. Um, and the inclusion uh, of the Necronomicon was not meant to be just like a cute little wink, um, but actually Adam Marcus intended it to um, be a subtle explanation for all the plot holes and the screwed up timeline in the Friday the 13th series by implying that Jason was a deadite. Um, there's an interview with him in 2017 where he says that, you know, in his mind, uh, Pamela Voorhees made a deal with the devil by reading from the Necronomicon to bring her dead son back to life, which is why, you know, Jason grows from a little boy to a fully grown man in just a few short years, why he's almost impossible to kill, how he can move so quickly without running, all of these things, why he keeps coming back essentially. Mm -hmm. um, he apparently pitched this idea to Sam Raimi, uh, who loved it um, and like basically gave him some thumbs up. Um, he also said in the same interview, he says that in his mind, uh, Creighton Duke's background was that he went to Crystal Lake as a teenager with his girlfriend, but she drowned when Jason capsized their boat and um, he pulled her under, which prompted you know, Creighton to dedicate his life to destroying Jason. Um, which explains the line at the end where Creighton says to Jason, like, oh, you remember me. Yeah. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Remember you from what? <laughs> um, thoughts on his intended explanation for I Jason? Mean, I like it as a fun thing. I don't think, I think like, you know, like mentioned earlier, I think this franchise does best like without needing to explain itself, like just letting it sort of be like, okay, here's one nuts uh, installment after another. Like, I think at that point, like it lacks so much continuity that it like became part of the, 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 the thing of it, right? So I don't think you um, like having it in there as an explanation, like seriously, which I don't think it was, but like, you know, like I like the idea of it being sort of tongue in, tongue in cheek, but like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm glad that that's all it was. Like, I don't think you need to like pull that into the world of the evil dead and, and go farther than that. Um, I think it's funny that Creighton has zero backstory, like in the actual text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just there the guy who's there and knows a ton of stuff like it's not even explained why he knows what he knows nope or like how he found that out or like yeah, yeah. nope um jason's big gross black heart um that miss mel thought was a brain yeah. uh, <laughs> was also used in from dusk till dawn as monkey man's heart um Michael B. Silver and Michelle Clooney, um, who are noted TV actors in their own rights and played Luke and Deborah, the sexy couple in this film, um, were actually a couple in real life and broke up like right before they got cast and then had to awkwardly film their tent sex scene together. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, that does suck. Um, no one 
this is, I was thought was an interesting production note for those interested in the making of movies. Nobody watched any of the dailies for this movie during the entire 28 day shoot, except uh, David Handman, who was the editor. They're like, yeah, it's probably fine. Yeah. That is, if you don't know Chatterer, is highly unusual and not recommended at all <laughs> because it will usually result in your movie being this movie. Yeah. Um, the original title of this movie was to be Friday the 13th Part 9, The Dark Heart of Jason Voorhees. Stupid. I was going to say, do you think that's a better or worse title than the actual one? I think the actual title is also stupid and misleading, but at least it isn't 15 words. Yeah. I just can't, like, they knew they wanted to do the crossover, so why tack on the final Friday? Yeah. Unless they intended that to be like, I don't know, like, they're like, okay, this is the end. Because the way I read um, the desire for the crossover is that it would be sort of like the, like the crossover would be the final Jason movie. Like he would, he would get into sort of like a, a mutually assured destruction battle with Freddy Krueger and that would be it. So maybe the idea was like, okay, this is the final like so the slasher one like yeah. traditional slasher one and then after that we'll do the sort of like you know final fantasy i could see that all right we'll give it that but yeah definitely a better title um and then of course in the final shot that is actually kane hodder's arm that comes up out of the ground uh which means he's the only actor to portray both jason Voorhees and freddy krueger good for him yeah. It was one of the, back in the day, he was originally considered like a finalist for Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Um, before it went to England. Before I had Robert England before talk of the town. Talk of the town. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's pretty cool for him. All right. So, um, Ms. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about... Um, the reception of this movie uh sure. when it was released um, and how it did and etc cetera, etc cetera. sure so it was released in august august 13th 1993 and i believe we've discussed before august kind of being like a dead zone uh for film right after sort of the summer blockbuster push and before things kind of get released for like award season yeah so not great. Um, it opened at number two at the box office um, behind The Fugitive, um, which was in its second week, and it opened with a 7.6 million uh, opening box office weekend. Also opening that same weekend was The Secret Garden, uh, Hearts and Souls, Heart and Souls, rather, Searching for Bobby Fisher, and especially on Sunday. Given that crop of movies, I mean, obviously The Fugitive, which is an excellent movie, but like Jason Goes to Hell is at least more memorable than any of the rest of those. Yeah. I think like the Secret Garden is the only one that sticks in my brain. Yeah. Um so in total it ended up getting 15.9, which isn't great considering that's you know, it opened at 7.6 or whatever. So it <laughs> really went down from there. Um <laughs> But uh, it was a profit at the very least because like it wasn't that expensive to make, I guess. Um, it, uh, 
made $12 million, um, but that still is the second lowest performing film in the franchise um, after part eight. Uh, the reviews <laughs> critiqued the ludicrous characters. <laughs> um, the, the sort of like distractingly like um, excessive gore, the bad lighting, the insane plot, um, the lack of suspense, the wooden dialogue, and just the bland acting. So basically there's nothing about the movie. Like it didn't even like the lighting. Yeah. Which that lighting in the diner scene is very weird. Yes. I couldn't tell who was like, I was like, who is who? And then like when he sticks his head in the air fryer, I guess, or not the air fryer. Yeah. So like, I was like, I couldn't, I was like, is he sticking his head in the fryer or is it the sink? I, I didn't know. And like, yeah, it's dark. It's lighting weird. They do the slow motion stuff or whatever. Again, it feels like very Terminator ripoff. Yeah. It doesn't work. Um, some positive reviews uh, praise Gant's performance, the score, um, Marcus's willingness to like sort of play and change up slasher cliches, um, and like sort of like the the crowd baby final shot. Right. Um, but ultimately, it has a 16% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 17 out of 100 on Metacritic, uh, IMDb of 4.1, and a letterbox score of 1.8 out of 5. Rough. <laughs> um, what would you give this movie? I So here's my thing, and I was thinking about... <laughs> I was thinking about it when I was reading it. There are some people that actually really like this movie. Is on the one hand, like I can appreciate the difference, like trying to do something different, like how this was sort of like a precursor to like much more successful versions of this with like a new nightmare and scream where like they're just doing something completely different with existing IP. And like I can appreciate that, but like it still has to be like a basic script that functions yeah and makes sense and this just it feels very much like it was written by somebody and directed by somebody who like had no edits and had no oversight and just sort of did what they wanted um because like I could forgive it a little bit more if even like the characters like that's something like I don't hate part four or I guess part five um as much as yeah, a lot of other people do just because like I, I find at least like the writing in it and the acting in it earnest and that sort of thing. Whereas here it's just like, you know, anyone could be anyone. There's unnecessary, you know, extra characters. There's like weird sort of like geograph geographical back and forths between locations that don't make sense. And it's just like nothing about it, like really like from a textual level, like it's not solid at all. That's what I'm saying. I just, I, I think this movie is so bad. It's my least favorite. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah. I give it a one. And that's generous, I feel like. Um, but we're still going to try and do a little bit of analysis, uh, see if we can contextualize this film from some slightly academic angles. Um, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go? I don't have a ton. I don't think yeah, I ever seen, I mean, but Really, all I had in there was just like, it's sort of a precursor to what comes later. 
um, with, yeah. again, taking that same IP and just really changing it up. Um, it just did not do a good job of it at all. Yeah. Um, so kind of really the only thing I like was working with in this section. So like, obviously we've got like the, like the bloodline driven story here, mm -hmm. um, which um, all of the big three slashers actually used around this time. Uh, Freddy's dead in 1991, um, uses like a relative thing as the plot point. And um, the Jamie Lloyd Halloween films from 88 to 95, um, all incorporate a plot element where the killers were driven to eliminate the remaining family members, while those same family members have a quasi supernatural connection to their relatives slash stalkers. So I was kind of like, well, why was this all happening at the same time? And I was thinking about that and like briefly mm -hmm. tried to see if I could find anything about it. And I think it could be as interpreted as like a cultural fear over the breakdown of the um, sort of like second wave idea of the nuclear family that had been so heavily pushed like during the Reagan eighties um, that was starting to like crumble um, or that the idea of that, that I guess was that was starting to break down in like the early nineties and sort of that idea that the threat comes from inside the family unit. It's not necessarily like an external threat to the family. So I thought maybe there was something there, the fact that all three of these franchises like play with that. Um, and then I think there is a potential reading you could do. And this also goes into the view from the closet of, um, you know, the AIDS epidemic was, you know, reaching some pretty scary heights in the early nineties. There were a lot of public concerns over how it was transmitted and the idea of like tainted blood um you know or like dirty blood um so I think you can maybe see that reflected in the film's depiction of the Jason demon hell baby thing mm -hmm. as it passed from person to person because it's usually through like like it looks like he's like trying to kiss the person right because yeah. it's like the, and he like, like just vomits in their mouths right and yeah so this idea of like the exchange of bodily fluids there's the weirdly homoerotic shaving thing that we went over so I was like, I don't know, there might be something there um, and by way of that kind of uh, reading or analysis, but that's all I've got. Yeah, I mean, what else can you do? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so let's take a moment and talk about one good scare. Uh, what do we each think is the most frightening moment of this film? Um, I think, and you mentioned this earlier, the melting cop scene is pretty gruesome and gross and very much like of that era of like um, intense gore, like practical effect gore and like what's the weirdest thing we could do. Um, and I think it's crazy because it seems like when Jason leaves their bodies, they come like to their senses temporarily or something because he's like having a reaction to the fact that he's melting and seems to be like himself again and is screaming and freaking out. Um, and I found that pretty, pretty interesting. That's pretty horrible. Um, I think mine is when Phil eats the heart near the beginning. It's pretty yeah. gross. 
This is something about, I guess, his performance. Like when he does that, it's just, I don't know, like the sounds, the squishiness, and it's just yeah. like, oh, that gets me. Um, so the view from the closet, yeah, that's where we, we take a moment and we say, hey, how can we view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens? I kind of did mine with the analysis. I don't know if there was something else you picked up on or. I mean, this one was a tough one. I mean, it's funny because there are so many characters that are such non-characters that I feel like you could claim anyone, you know, could secretly be in love with anyone. Right. Like, let's, yeah, well, let's, all right. Um, Vicky was in love with Jessica and that's why yeah. she's so upset. There. Yeah. Boom. Did it. Did it. Um, and now we'll move into our last segment, which is legacy, legacy, what is the legacy? The impact of the film, how it's regarded now, um, its stance in pop culture, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the film was released on VHS in 1994 and 1998, and then on DVD by New Line Home Video in 2002. The DVD featured both the theatrical and the unrated director's cut which is just three minutes longer. Um, on September 13th, 2013, Paramount and Warner Brothers co-released the Friday the 13th Complete Collection Blu-ray box set mm -hmm. featuring all 12 films for the first time. And then the theatrical and the unrated cuts were both included in the Friday the 13th Ultimate Collection Blu-ray box set released by Scream Factory in 2022, uh, which is the set that I have. Um, and there's a number of special features on there and interviews and a director's commentary with Adam Marcus. Um, I didn't really watch any of the special features yet and because this is my least favorite one. <laughs> I will someday. But. Um, a three issue comic book series with the same title, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday by Andy Mangles was published by Top Comics in July, 1993 as a lead up to the film's release. Um, from what I could tell, it's pretty faithful. I saw that there were some copies on like Amazon and eBay for around like 70 bucks, if anyone's really interested. Um, they also released a series of tie-in trading cards for the film. And then the novel, uh, Friday the 13th, Hate, Kill, Repeat, which is set between the seventh and eighth films, mentions in the epilogue that the FBI have verified that Jason actually exists and they're making plans to trap him and send him straight to hell. So sort of like a teaser of what would happen in this film, I guess. Um, the final shot of the film featuring Freddy Krueger's hand was the setup for the future crossover, Freddy versus Jason, um, which we mentioned had been in development hell since 1987 and would ultimately be released 10 years after this film in 2003 with another Friday of the 13th film in between <laughs> this film yes. and the crossover. Um, uh, the Necronomicon and the Kondarian Dagger from Evil Dead 2, which show up in this film, uh, are plot points in the comic book series, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, and the sequel series, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, The Nightmare Warriors. Um, and then this film's version of Jason is a playable character um, in Friday the 13th, The Game, and actually fixes a continuity error that was made in the film. Um, 
in this movie, Jason is depicted as having his right eye damaged, but it would actually be his left eye from when he gets hit with the machete in part four um, by Tommy. Uh, and so the game actually fixes the error by giving the part nine Jason the damaged left eye. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Um, did you have anything else for uh, Legacy Legacy? No. <laughs> <laughs> That there are some people that vehemently defend this film. Um, yeah, it's actually amongst a, a polarizing franchise. It is one of the more polarizing uh, installments. Yes, it is. It's definitely a love hate situation. I know where I stand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Miss Mel. I think it's time for you to take us home with a closing question. Yeah. So this isn't the most, I mean, this isn't the most uh, original question, I guess. But I guess if you had to pick, if you, if you got to pick any sort of like movie monster that Jason got to fight, who would, who would it be? Mm. Almost like instead of Freddy's hand at the end. Like yeah, could... like what, what would you have it lead into? I think that's, that's a good one. I think it would be interesting to see Jason go up against Candyman. Okay. Maybe because maybe because I got Tony Todd on the brain now. Yeah. But uh, there's such different kinds of like horror movie villains and how they mm -hmm. operate, and like Candyman's kind of similar to Freddy. Like he's right. like spectral yeah. and supernatural, but like he does have a physical presence in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I think that'd be an interesting matchup. Yeah. How about you? So I was really thinking about, I was like, okay, like what Jason's sort of this lumbering physical, like he's amongst the sort of like famous slashers. He's the one who is like physically the most present and like his, yeah. his scariness comes from the fact that he is like physically dominating to people so I was trying to think I was like okay what would be a challenge to him from that regard and then I was trying to think of more like supernatural things and then I was like what if he was in the house from House of Haunted Hill oh my god and just had to deal with that that actually be pretty fun yeah I'm like what does that look like um so that would be pretty fun to watch like the the ghosts in that house just like Fuck with him and Jason. Yeah. And then like him being like confused and frustrated that he can't just like yeah. machete them to death. And he's like going, you know, they're like, you know, doing sort of like like he gets trapped in some sort of sensory deprivation chamber yeah. some sort of place oh, that triggers memories of his mom or something. <laughs> Jason. <laughs> exactly. That's what happens in the sensory deprivation chamber. In the sensory deprivation chamber. <laughs> Little boy drowned. <laughs> All right, well, we did it. Yeah. We are closing out our discussion on Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday. If you want to defend this movie, tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> By all means, you can. There's a lot of ways you can get in touch with us. Miss Mel, sound off. 
So you can send a strongly worded email to <laughs> splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. If you so desire, you can send a strongly worded tweet to splatterchatter666. Um, you know, but that's minus all the vowels, as we've said many times before. If that's too difficult, start typing, we'll pop right up. Uh, you can leave mean comments on the blog at splatter-chatter.com. Uh, you can send us mean DMs on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com or on Instagram at splatterchatter666. Uh, I think that's all the places, unless you want to, you know, yell at us personally, but that's, you know, confidential information. Right, yeah. All right. And um, thank you for joining us for our ninth Friday the 13th special in our 98th episode. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be back next month, June, for our 99th episode uh, covering a TBD topic. Mm -hmm. Our next Friday the 13th special will be in January of 2023, and we will be covering part 10, Jason X. Yes. This <laughs> has been waiting patience. <laughs> and we are in the home stretch now to get to the one movie she has been desperate to talk about. Jason X. So that's, um, uh, that's how we're going to start off the new year. Yeah, what a, what a way to kick things off. Hell yeah. But uh, as we have that to look forward to, um, we want to remind you guys to keep up the creep. And for now, we'll say au revoir, adios, and that's it.